Church, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here today. It's great to be gathered here. Already so much at work uh, in the service today. If you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. And if there is anyone visiting here today, I just want to extend our welcome that we're very glad that you are with us today. So Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 6 and 7. And we have been making our way through a sermon series on origins in the book of Genesis. Two weeks ago, we looked at origins of angels and demons, including the crafty serpent. And last week, we looked at origins of temptation and testing. And today, we're going to be starting the first of two messages looking at the origins of sin. The message today is called The Fall of Adam. And next week, we'll be looking at the origins of imputed sin, the sin that we inherit from Adam. And if you are following along with the, with the outline, I am going to try to call out where we are as I go. So let's, let's look at the text. Um, for context, I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. As I read these verses, let's remember that this is the holy word of God, the inspired word of God and the authoritative word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you build us up today by your spirit to a fuller understanding of you and your call for our lives. Father, please guide the preaching of your word here today for your glory and the good of your people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Over these past several weeks, we've been seeing the unfolding of the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Up until the serpent spoke his words of temptation. Things were going amazingly well, unbelievably well. 
there is peace and comfort in abundance. At the end of chapter 2, we read this verse, these beautiful words, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is describing a world where there was no need for any protection. No clothing, no cloak, no covering. Everything in the garden was just right. The environment, even the climate, was perfectly suited for humanity. This is what we would call pre-fall perfection. Adam and Eve had all that they needed. God had formed them, given them life, given them himself, given them each other. They had companionship and romance. God had placed them in this garden paradise where they should want for nothing. This was a very pleasant and pleasing picture. But it was about to come crashing down. How could that happen? How could those who have it so good turn out so bad? The garden is paradise. How can there be any hope for us if humanity fails in that perfect environment? Adam and Eve's sinful rebellion in the midst of this perfection would have profound theological significance. According to one commentator, humanity at its best rebels in the perfect environment. So as we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, and what we heard about in more detail last week, Satan has come to tempt to draw attention to the forbidden. Alex spoke of this as distracting and slandering. Satan first sought to distract Adam and Eve from enjoying what God had given them, to distract from his generosity, from his goodness, and from his bounty. Then the devil brought slander by attacking God's character. Did God actually say, he said? You will not surely die, he argued. God doesn't want you to be like him. He lied. Complete slander. We were reminded last week of the popular expression, the devil made me do it. Do not be fooled about our culpability for sin. There may be temptation, but we are responsible for our response. And temptations surely come. Here, facing temptation in the garden, Adam and Eve both in their own free will disobeyed God and both would be held accountable and both would suffer the punishment for their actions. But forbidden fruit seems sweeter. Forbidden fruit is attractive. Forbidden fruit is desirable. Forbidden fruit calls out to all of us. As we've seen already in this sermon series, God's first words to man were words of life, words of blessing, words of empowerment. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing. And God commanded, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. With this thou shalt not, God told Adam that one act of disobedience would result in the penalty of death. The judgment following this one trespass would bring condemnation into all the world. 
This one sin would make Adam and Eve sinners before God, no longer able to stand in his holy presence. Their constant communion with God would undergo death, and Adam and Eve would go to earthly graves. Let's look again at verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The serpent sows seeds of doubt in the woman's mind. He questions God's motives and suggests that God has placed unfair limits on the first couple. In Eve's response to the serpent, she displays her openness to temptation. She misquotes God by exaggerating the prohibition while weakening the penalty. Eve first minimized the freedom that God had given them to eat from the trees of the garden. She said, essentially, we can do what we want, but then God took away. Then Eve added strictness to God's word that wasn't there, saying, not only can, can we not eat, but we can't even touch. And finally, Eve softened God's word in regard to the certainty of death if they were to sin. She left out the word surely. God actually had said, you shall surely die. So Eve minimized added to and softened God's word. Eve's revisionism left her open to believe the lie of Satan against all of her experience of God's goodness. She rose up against God's word. She took the fruit, she ate the fruit, and she gave it to her husband. In response to the temptation of Satan, Eve was consumed. She trusted her own evaluation of what was right and what would be good for her rather than allowing God's word to define right and wrong. And maybe Eve's sin sounds familiar. Forbidden fruit does call out to us. And we can be guilty of telling ourselves the lie that what is evil is good, or what is wrong is a delight, or what brings harm is enriching. Does sin not dazzle and attract? To Eve, she was seeing this prospect of material enrichment, aesthetic enrichment, mental enrichment. This was all devastatingly provoked within her. The world offers this type of provocation, sinful enrichment manifesting in ill-gained wealth or seductive eye candy or false enlightenment. What temptations may you be facing? Is pursuit of professionalist success impacting your walk with Christ? Are you preoccupied with a certain level of lifestyle or income? Is lust damaging relationships or your pursuit of purity? How's your screen time been looking recently? In 1 John chapter 2, we read the following, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now let's look at Adam. Adam doesn't say a word. He's strangely quiet. Victory in spiritual warfare is believing the truth of God 
over the lies of the devil. And in this, Adam failed. Adam did not bring the word of God forward. Adam did not wield the sword of the spirit given to him for holy battle. In spiritual warfare, we are to stand fast against the schemes of the devil by standing fast on God's word. As Paul encouraged the church at Philippi, we are to hold fast to the word of life. Christians, we must cling to the word. So what happened as Adam failed to do this? As Adam failed to cling to the word of life given to him by God, he lost the battle. Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open without hesitation. His sin was laden with sinful self-interest. He watched Eve take the fruit and saw that nothing happened to her. And he then sinned, believing there would be no consequences. Everything in this picture is upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And no one followed God. Adam's transgression has greater culpability. This is why we talk of the fall of Adam. God had given the man responsibility of headship. And man's greater culpability is evident in the following. God's word had been given directly to Adam before Eve's creation. Adam was present with Eve during the temptation. This is evidenced in the underlying text that shows that Satan speaks with the word plural, you. You both. Adam in self-serving passivity allowed his wife to partake while he looked on. And then as they hid in the garden, God sought the man to give account of what they had done. Ray Ortland says the following, Eve usurped Adam's headship and led the way into sin. And Adam allowed the deception to proceed without intervention. Adam, for his part, abandoned his host as head. Eve was deceived and Adam forsook his responsibility. All of this has taken place under the sovereign hand of God. Calvin describes it this way, John Calvin, God willed the fall. So we have to affirm, however mysterious this may be, that the fall of Adam happened by the providence of God, while Adam bore the responsibility for his actions. God allowed this to happen, but Adam would be held accountable for what he did. Now what exactly does it mean to sin? What is the definition of sin? I think it's helpful for us Christians sometimes to remember that we often have a different vernacular from the world, a different vocabulary. We use words that may be foreign to others or that might need more depth of explanation to be understood in the context of our faith. And this reminds me of the cartoon Snoopy. If you ever saw the cartoon Snoopy, Charlie Brown, whenever Charlie Brown's parents were around, when they would talk, the kids could understand them, but they were in unintelligible tones. We could never understand the parents. And sometimes this may be how we come across as we engage the world, that our words and meaning may hit people as unintelligible tones. And sometimes we can be guilty of taking knowledge for granted. Maybe we believe something because someone told us about it. But what does it really mean to know? Is there a difference between what we think we know and then our ability to explain it to somebody. It's one of the reasons why the bridge course is such a great experience here. It's designed from top down to be a place where questions are meant to be asked. 
It's a great place to grow in your knowledge of the Christian faith, the bridge course. Several years ago, I was involved in a men's Bible study, a summer Bible study. We met around the bonfire every week, and there was a, there was a telling incident. Our study guide had the, had the question, what is sin? And when that question was read, there was complete silence. And I'm sure that, that everybody, everybody was thinking. We were firing on all cylinders. What, how do you answer that question? What is sin? What are we going to say? There wasn't an answer. The answer that we heard for a little while was just the crackling of the fire. And it is a basic question. What is sin? Today we're talking about the first sin in all of humanity. This is the time in God's creation when sin first entered the world, when that pleasant and perfect picture of paradise would come crashing down. The Bible is very clear that that first sin, through that first sin came all the rest. All of the sin, the suffering, the sickness, the strife, the condemnation and the death that is all around us originated with that first sin. So before we look at a definition of sin, I think it's important to acknowledge the following. God tempts no one. God is not to be blamed for sin. God does not delight in sin. And God himself does not sin. And God is not surprised by sin. But God did sovereignly ordain that sin would come into the world. Man and angels sinned and they all did so and do so by their willful, voluntary choices. God providentially ordained that sin would come through voluntary choices made by moral creatures. God allowed this so that he could glorify himself by defeating sin and redeeming his people. James speaks of our personal responsibility for sin in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our desires lead to sin, and sin leads to death. And this is as true today as it was in the garden. So if a non-Christian were to ask you that question, what is sin, how would you answer it? The meaning of the word sin is so central to our faith that it warrants study. If our Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which he did, then sinners should know what sin is. And if we are called to repent and believe, which we are, then we should know what we are repenting of. The world today is preaching acceptance, not sin. And there are churches out there today that are not talking much about sin. God is love, they say, and he wants you to succeed in life. Yes, God is love, and he does want us to succeed in life. But there is a much bigger story going on. Jesus is preparing his bride, the church. He is cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So as we men sat around that fire contemplating the question, what is sin? One brave soul stepped forward and offered his answer. And his answer was short and simple. It was just two words. 
And his answer was so acceptable to the group that we raised our voices in agreement. His two-word answer to the question, what is sin? The answer is disobeying God. Sin is disobeying God. These two words do well to describe what sin is. But I want to take some time to dig a little bit deeper and study this further. The Apostle John said simply that sin is lawlessness. That means that sin is transgression of the law of God. Put another way, sin is breaking the laws of the lawmaker. And Scripture teaches that knowledge of sin comes through the law. The law by which sin is defined is the law of God, not an impersonal or freestanding set of rules. Sin is a direct offense against God, against God's character, against His person. God's law reveals the very heart of who God is and what He wants. That's why sin is so serious. It's not just breaking a rule, but spitting in the eye of the rule maker. The law reveals God's personal will. Failure to obey God's command is nothing other than personal opposition to Him. Sin is mistrust of God, betrayal, ingratitude, and disloyalty. So in light of all that, it cannot be overstated that sin in any form is the most serious problem of mankind. And while sin devastates and hurts us and hurts others, ultimately every sin is against God himself. This is why King David says in Psalm 51, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wayne Grudem offers this helpful biblical definition. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And I want to take a minute to just unpack that definition. Let's look at each of these, act, attitude, and nature. Examples of an individual act of sin would be lying, or stealing, disrespecting a parent, gossip. These are examples of acts of sin. But God's law is about more than actions. The law speaks to our attitudes as well. Consider the 10th commandment. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. God specifies that a desire to steal or a desire to commit adultery is also sin in his sight. Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke of sinful attitudes being prohibited like lust and anger. Elsewhere, Scripture speaks against attitudes of jealousy, envy, heartlessness. It was spoken of earlier today, the sin of unbelief. These are examples of attitudes of sin. So sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law in both action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. Before we were redeemed by Christ, we were sinners by nature. Psalm 51 speaks of being conceived in sin. In Romans, we read that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And Ephesians speaks of our former nature as children of wrath. Consider how Adam and Eve's sin led to the corruption of their nature, evidenced right away by the fact that they demonstrated fear before God. All of these things speak to the example of us having a sinful nature. And so we can define sin as being any failure to conform to God's moral law in act, attitude, or nature. Now what about this bigger story? Jesus is preparing his bride, the church, that she might be holy without blemish. 
Kevin DeYoung says the following, you cannot make sense of the Bible without understanding this, that God is holy and that this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. God in his kindness has written his law on our hearts that we might have a guiding conscience, a sense of right and wrong. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the work of the law being written on our hearts. We all have the law written on our hearts that our consciences can either accuse or excuse us. And while we may have many conflicting thoughts, God speaks to us through our conscience, affecting us with a sense of right and wrong. When I was a, a teenager... I was hired by the family of a classmate to mow their lawn while they were away. And it sounded pretty simple. Tend to their lawn while they were gone. It wasn't a very big lawn, and they had a perfectly fine push mower. But it went wrong pretty quickly. I was not careful about looking for hazards. I had no idea that there was a vent pipe in their lawn. A vent pipe comes up about four inches from the ground, and uh, in tall grass, it's not easy to see. So as I was pushing that mower along, I hit that thing and it shattered into, into pieces. That vent pipe was in about half a dozen pieces on their lawn. I immediately felt a sick feeling in my stomach. And maybe somebody with a little more wisdom or maturity might have reported this to the local authorities. That would have been my mother. Or maybe slipped a note under the door to the homeowner to let them know on their return what I had done. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to cover it up and pretend that it never happened. So I sat there like a sculptor trying to put those shattered pieces back just enough that from a distance it's going to look like everything's fine. My conscience was speaking to me. My embarrassment, my fear, my shame. So I pretended everything was okay. I came over to visit my friend when they came back acting as if nothing had happened, but my error had been exposed. My friend's father had found out immediately, and so when I showed up at the door, he called me to account for what I had done, and he wanted to know why I just hadn't told him. And this might sound like a silly story, but I would imagine that each of us have experienced something similar, our, our own sin of Eden. And is it not heartbreaking to see the feeble attempt that Adam and Eve made to cover their skin. Had we not just seen them in peace and comfort, naked and not ashamed, that perfect and pleasant picture of paradise, now making poor attempts at clothing and thinking that they could hide from the Lord of heaven and earth, do we not smile at their folly, seeing how ridiculous it is to place a covering before God's eyes? Did God not know what they had done? Does God not know what we have done? And did he not know where they were? Does God not know where we are? It reminds me of one struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, something that I have very personal experience with. How much of the drinking of a drunkard is an attempt to just cover up and hide? Hide from mistakes, hide from sin, hide from shame, hide from fear. And as we look at Adam and Eve, do we not see ourselves staring back? Did it make any sense for them to think that they could gain anything by disobeying the words of their Creator or that they could hide from the One who calls us to account? And though we may convince ourselves that there are good reasons for sinning, 
when examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen in every case that sin ultimately just does not make sense. We try to be like our first parents to cover our sin, to hide from consequences. But we can rest assured that all that is hidden will one day be exposed. Our Lord is the judge of the secrets of men and of women. And maybe you're wrestling with forbidden fruit even now. Maybe you're falling victim to this lie. How can God be good and not give me that? The deceiver would have you believe that you can be like God and decide what is right and wrong. Sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and God's goodness. Maybe you've been trying to cover something up. Maybe you are racked with guilt and shame. Maybe you've been trying to hide from someone or something. I want to encourage you today to bring this into the light. You can do it now. Conviction is fleeting. The devil wants to hold us in darkness because that's where he can control us and block us off from God's call to holiness. The crafty serpent is still at work. We read in 1 Peter 5.8 that our adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I wonder, have we, have we ever thought about this? Why is the lion roaring as the lion chases its prey? Why would a hunter not be quiet and stealth? The devil is roaring to paralyze us, to paralyze us with fear. God cares enough to show us his ways and to direct his paths. Could you imagine how awful it would be to live in this world and even have some sense that there is a God and yet not know what he desires of us? Let us receive his divine statutes. Let us receive his call on our lives, his call on our actions, our attitudes, and our nature. Let us receive all this as his gift to us. God has given us the law because he loves us, and he has promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, the conscience is no substitute for the Bible and must never be in opposition to it. But a good conscience is a gift from God. And as we pursue holiness, we must always be mindful of God as he speaks to us through our conscience. But our conscience must be well informed by the word of God. Do you know that the Bible promises that the certainty of our knowledge of God and our belief in him come from its very pages? Scripture is sufficient for knowledge of faith and life in Christ. The sufficiency of Scripture means that in the Bible, God has told us what is necessary for the proper understanding of who He is, who we are, and what He expects from us. Scripture contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, everything we need to know for God to tell us how to trust Him perfectly, and everything we need God to tell us for obeying Him perfectly. It is there in the Bible that God has instructed us in His moral law. So we want to be students of the Word. We want to be in His Word and reading His Word and knowing His Word. We can be doing this and delighting in the law of the Lord day and night. And and you may be doing this. You may have developed a pattern, a habit. Maybe there's a time of day, a place, a way that you're engaging in the Word. I asked a friend recently for a suggestion. This man sets a great example in his studies And I just asked him for tips on how he's doing it. And he he, he gave me what I thought was kind of an interesting and unique thought. Is plan to read with someone else. Reading with someone, a friend, family, spouse, um, someone from your community group. Reading, 
puts you into instant accountability when you're with someone else for your time and devotion. You could meet together and read together, or you could plan to read separately and come together to talk about it, to pray about it. So partnering in reading is a, is a great way to move forward. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord, or maybe I'm coming across like Charlie Brown's parents with unintelligible tones, I want to tell you how glad we are that you're here. I don't think it's an accident that you're here today or any stroke of luck. God is calling you even now. The Bible teaches that God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind on all the face of the earth. In this, we are all children of Adam. God has determined the days of our lives and the boundaries of our dwelling places. For what? That we should seek Him and perhaps feel our way towards Him and find Him. And you may be doing this right now already, that He is calling you. And the promise, His promise, is that He is actually not far from each and every one of us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and profess with your mouth that God raised Him from the dead. Seize the victory over sin that Jesus Christ has won for His church. Even as Jesus is now cleansing His bride by the washing of water with the Word, that we, His people, would be holy and without blemish. Receive His invitation for eternal life. Now church, here is the reality that beginning with Adam and Eve, All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin because we are sinners. We are incapable of full adherence to God's law because sin has rendered us unable. And whoever tries to keep the whole law but falls in one point becomes guilty of all of it. Like a chain, its strength and utility depends on every link. So it is with the law that falling short, we are lawbreakers. People cannot keep the law. Our only hope is to cry out to God. So all of this is to say that we need a rescuer, a savior, because we are unable to fix what is broken inside of us. We are unable to set right the brokenness of the world around us. And the sin and corruption that we see is coming from the curse of the fall of Adam. It is subjecting now the world to futility, decay, and death. Let us long for the redemption of all things under Christ. We were made in the image and likeness of God. The redemption of Christ is progressively restoring us, restoring fallen men and women to their true humanity as we are being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another. By grace we have been justified by faith and are being sanctified by the Spirit to the image of Christ. The Lord is preparing His bride that she might be holy and without blemish. I like football. The NFL football season has just restarted. I'm a big fan. I love watching games with friends. There's something very interesting about the sport. You might already know this, that the home team has a statistical advantage to winning the game. This is what's called the home field advantage. It's statistically true in any sport, football, baseball, basketball, ice hockey, rugby, Why is it that the home team tends to win a little bit more than the away team? It's the same battle on the field, right? The players have been tested and trained, but being at home makes a difference. And the reason is the support and the encouragement of the fans. 
Who among us does not feel better when someone just says to us, hey, nice job? Or yes, you can do it. Compliments lift our heart. Encouragement gives us a craving to succeed. The next time you're taking a golf shot or throwing the frisbee, having a game of catch, could you imagine 90,000 people cheering you on? Or how about the next time the tempter tempts, will you hear the hometown fan shouting for your victory? And here's the point, Christians. We have the greatest home field advantage there is. We are surrounded by a great host of past witnesses. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Or we look around at each of us, brothers and sisters, cheering us on in the faith. Most of all, do we not have the greatest, most perfect, faithful one in the stands and on the field, rooting us on and encouraging us and inspiring us? God is not a mere fan or teammate or trainer, timekeeper or coach. He is more than any of those things. He is our everything. And most certainly, our Father is working in us and through us. As was said earlier, as was read earlier, God is for us. And in saving us, God has joined us to the body, which includes our gathering here today in worship. It includes stirring one another up to good works. It includes serving alongside one another in mission. It includes fellowship in our community groups. God has given each one of us to one another for care and encouragement and accountability. Sin doesn't have to stay in the dark. We confess our sins to one another. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, read earlier today, if God is for us, who can be against us? The next time you're struggling with temptation, the next time you're trying to guard your tongue or be faithful in the midst of battle, the next time you feel the old self creeping back in, remember that victory is already ours. Christ has won the battle. His victory is our victory. We can find the strength because of the grace coming from our great champion. Since God is for us, victory is certain. Spiritual survival is assured. We can have confidence of our protection. We can have confidence of our preservation. And we can have confidence of future glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones posed this question. Who can conquer this devil that defeated Adam in all his perfection and innocence and lured him to disgrace and death? That is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. As we sang earlier today, the Lion of Judah, who is roaring with power, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, the one whose blood breaks the bondage of sin. Before Adam and Eve would be cast out of the garden, innocent blood would be shed to cover their sin. God Himself made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. And this animal sacrifice points to the perfect sacrifice that was to come. Yes, God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. Jesus Christ left His heavenly realm to suffer and die on a cross that He would bear our sin, that He would take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. While we have failed to conform to the moral law of God and act attitude or nature, our sinless Savior lived a perfect life and He loves us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice of God. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Most merciful God, Father in heaven, we confess that we have sinned against You in act, attitude, and nature. 
we are truly sorry and humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Church, I'm going to leave you with this benediction from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. forever. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Thank you.